Welcome to Sedaris. My name is Dave. We're going to enter into a time of teaching. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, grab it. Turn to John chapter 13. We're in a new chapter. John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's ones in the seat back in front of you. And if you use that Bible, we are on page uh, 956. 956. And you can turn there. Um, we have been walking through our series in John one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, and he teaches us some stuff we need to know about Jesus. Now, I would like to say this. If, if at any time you're cold, the balcony is about 20 degrees warmer, especially on a cold day, it just, it's like free hot yoga up there. So head on up, relax. Uh, so, but be warned if you're up there, you know. It probably won't get any cooler. Turns out hot air rises. So, okay, so today we are going to, to learn about true humility. Humility. Uh, the, the true humility that Jesus himself modeled for us. And discovering true humility um, is, I think, rare in our world. I don't think we see it. And oftentimes, and, and I'll explain why, like, um, we might think that we're displaying humility ourselves or witnessing humility, but there's some elements needed for humility, true humility, to be on display. And so it can be confusing at times, am I witnessing true humility or just something that looks like humility? And so hopefully by the end of today, you'll have some categories to both... Um, Look yourself in the mirror and also identify true humility when you see it in the world. So one of the ways to sort of spot a true thing is to understand what a fake looks like. And so a uh, great example, this wasn't added it this morning, one thing to be careful of when you think you're seeing humility, uh, but it's not actually humility. So I got a great little mini lesson in that this morning. Um, because true humility isn't a look, okay? It's a look on a face, you know? It's not, it's not oh, wow, look at that person's face. They, they beam humility. There's no such thing as beaming of humility. We'll see today, humility is an action, not a look. And so some people have sort of mastered the look of humility, you know? And, and Jesus actually will talk about this. He'll say, like, watch out for those hyper-religious people who, who fast all the time, and they don't eat so that their face looks gaunt, and like they're so holy, and in the same way, people can really—they've just got one of those humble faces, but deep down, their heart is deceitful. I had that this morning. It happened to me. So frustrating. Many of you know I became a dog owner just a year ago, and my dog Moose has mastered <laughs> the look of humility. You will look at his eyes and you will say, that is the most humble dog you've ever met. He's so sweet. And everyone who has a dog says, oh, my dog is the most humble. Don't be fooled. These dogs are ravenous wolves. <laughs> Seriously. And just this morning, I, I realized this because there are at least two things that Moose lacks in order to have true humility, as we'll talk about today. The first true humility requires you to have is true power. Moose does not have true power. And the other thing he lacks 
True humility requires you to have the ability to think about others. Okay, so true power requires that you have the ability to think about other people or to think about other people. Moose does not have that. Only think about himself. It's not his fault, so don't get mad at Moose. He's just a good example. He literally is wired only to think about his own survival. And he doesn't have true power because he exists in the world as a scavenger. So he, he cannot build any machinery. He can't harvest his own food. He just has to wait and find scraps. Well, today was a day of darkness for Moose. I woke up early. I needed to wake up early, and I needed some food last night. Great wedding. Danced a little bit. Had a little food. Had some limoncello. I was feeling it, so I got to go. I got to get some coffee, and I got to get a breakfast sandwich. Some little bit, a little bit of grease in it. So I go coffee, I get my sandwich, get back to the house, as soon as I get back to the house, now the family's still sleeping, and, a, and I assumed that Moose was still sleeping, there was no noise in the house, so I set my sandwich on the counter, and my coffee on the counter, and I just got to, real quick, I got to use the restroom, so I go downstairs, though, because I didn't want to wake the family, you see, it was kindness, humility, <laughs> and I go downstairs, but I left the sandwich on the kitchen counter. And I'm downstairs and I come back upstairs. What's that noise? What? What? Moose had stolen breakfast sandwich. Like a ravenous wolf. In the short time I was away to the bathroom, eating the whole sandwich. And he looked at me with a face of humility. Lies. Terrible lies. He has no ability to think about others, and he has no true power to help others if he even wanted. He can only think of himself. He can only act for himself. It's not his fault, but it is your fault. Like Moose, you have the ability and the moral competency to either use your true power to bless others, or to only use your power for yourself. Unlike Moose, you do have the ability to consider others, or to only consider yourself. So this is not a sermon for Moose, it's a sermon for you. But pray Moose, I love him just a little less this morning. Okay. So let's, speaking of pray, let's pray, and then we'll look at the text. Father God, thank you for just examples of how truly super human, otherworldly, the love that you have for us is. God, just it's all over the world we see how we would be if it weren't for intervention. Showing us a better way to live. Showing us a better way to love. Showing us what it means to use your power and to consider others. Thank you for showing us. God, I pray that, that that the revelation of that kind of love would just jump off the page today as we, as we read about Jesus. 
as we read about what he does for his disciples as the one true God come into the world in the flesh, as John tells us, to watch what he does with his power, that it would change us and change us this week, this year, and for the rest of our lives, that we would not be the same because of the model we have of true humility in Jesus Christ. So be with us as we study and learn. Stir in us an understanding of who you are, understanding of your word. God, if we have not or have not been experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit, we pray now, come Holy Spirit into this space, into each heart. Illuminate each heart with your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so into the text. Away from Moose, we'll leave him, we'll deal with him later, and then we'll, and then we'll get another breakfast sandwich. Okay, so let's look at this. Verse 1, 13, verse 1. Now, we've just finished a whole big section of Scripture, right? We talked about that last week. You can go back and listen to that if you weren't here. Uh, this whole big, the public sort of witness of Jesus, John, breaks his story of Jesus' life into parts, and the first part was about the public ministry where everyone was walking with him, and then we talked about last week, he does say now there's a choice to be made, and so many, pretty much everyone walks away from Jesus, and, and this great picture from last week, you can go back if it doesn't make any sense, it's a beautiful drawing by one of the finest artists in the church, that's my work, thank you. And uh, we have the mountain of God, the narrow path, Jesus says, follow me, and we have the wide path that leads to an epic life now, but only now. And so Jesus wants to help us learn to follow him, but we have to make a choice. We have agency to do that. So that was last week. And now we move into what's now this more private um, uh, Five chapters where Jesus is really giving his final instructions to his closest disciples. And today we'll see just Jesus and the twelve in the upper room, the Last Supper. And uh, so verse 1 puts us straight into that scene now. And we don't know how, many, how much time has passed from right before this, but John now throws us into the upper room where Jesus has the Last Supper. Have you heard about the Last Supper, the most famous meal that's ever been uh, consumed by a human being in all of history, the Last Supper. Paintings are made about this supper. Um, songs are sung about this. I mean, amazing scene. And, and, and John is going to assume that you know about this Last Supper. Uh, maybe you don't know about it, but it's coming right before Jesus is betrayed by one of his 12 closest friends and disciples, Judas, and he's going to talk about him here. Right before that happens, this is his final meal. And that's important to understand just sort of the, the value of what Jesus has said. And we'll, we'll get into that in just a second. So John's going to assume you know about this because you've read about it in Matthew and Luke. Both talk about this and Mark. So the other gospel. So he's going to just kind of jump into the scene, but um, I'll explain it in a second. So he jumps in, and then in, in verse 1 he gives us this kind of summary of this whole next section, which is the intimate last teachings lessons of Jesus. So let's read it. Verse 1 says this, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come from this world to go to the Father. 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, so this, the, the best way to think about this one verse is it's like, it's like a subheading setting up this whole next section. So he says a couple things. Jesus knows his time has come to an end. It's right in the last week of his life before his death. But then, of course, it's not his life because on the third day he rose from the grave. This is why it's funny to call it the Last Supper because it definitely wasn't Jesus' Last Supper. Even in the Gospels, he eats again. So I don't know why we call it that, but that's okay. Um, okay, so that's where we are. And then he says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, right? So John is saying, Let me show you how much he loved them to the end. These are the things he's going to say to those that he loves, that those who are, he considers to be his own. Um, up into the end, up into the end of his life before his crucifixion. And so, what I just want to say real quick is, just sort of on a meta level here, John is giving us a great, uh, he's showing us by the way he structures his gospel, the sort of in and out nature of the life. And it applies to us as well. So it's very instructive. So we are going to see him talk today about uh, so a, a few of the great one another's of Scripture, right? So Jesus is constantly saying, love one another. We'll see that. We'll, we'll lock into that word. Love one another. He's talking about his own. So he's talking about his people. But then he's also going to tell him to go out to the people that aren't a part of the one another's. And so even in the way John structures his gospel, he's showing that there's a public side to Jesus' life, and there should be a public side to our life, and then there's a private side to Jesus' life, and a, there should be a private side to our life. And so it's like a breathing in and out. That's the rhythm of the Christian life. So anytime you get this breathing pattern off, affect your effectiveness in bringing Jesus to the world, right? Because if Jesus did it this way, and they told his disciples to do it this way, we this way as well. So there's a breathing in that we're going to see in the next five where he really circles up his own and he loves them to the end and he gives them some very unique, practical um, examples of love and things that then they, then he's going to say, go take this out and share this world. Okay. So, so when we walk with Jesus, we want to mimic this rhythmic breathing pattern. We have to gather like we are this morning, we're breathing in, we're inhaling the goodness and the love of God and His Word and His teaching and the community. That's why I love to hear that four-minute conversation, just the, the interactions, the souls crashing together. We need that. That's the breathing in. But to exhale and leave this place. And we are going to go now take that love, take what we experienced and share it with others. But if we don't come back again and gather next week and breathe back in, we'll be running with very low oxygen. What they want. So Jesus says, no, there's, there's the public and then there's the private. And we see that in the structure of John's narrative. I just, because if this pattern gets out of balance or is non-existent or we're only living in the private section, we never go out, we're not fulfilling who Jesus was or what his mission was, or if we're only out and we never come in, we just won't have any steam or energy. So we've got to live in the balance of the public and the private. And I hope all of us think about that deeply. Are there things that you're doing to, to breathe in the goodness of God, the freshness, the filling of the Spirit? 
And then are you taking them and going out and publicly sharing that with people and things? And, um, and yeah, the world will wear you out so you can come back. And that's that in and out, that rhythmic breathing of the Christian life. And we see that. So we're now in a breathing in moment in these five chapters where these are very intimate things where Jesus says, having loved his own who were, who were in the world, he loves them together and gives them some very private, beautiful um, breathing in moments because he's about to send them out in ways that they could never have imagined. And you give them some really important, special stuff. So what we're going to talk about t- today and over the next several weeks is really important, the final lessons of Jesus, okay? Just wanted to say that to start. Okay, let's v- look at verses 2 to 5 now. So now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put, in, put it into the heart of Judas... That's Simon Iscariot's son, that Judas, some other Judases that were cool. This Judas, he was cool, then he wasn't, anyhow. He's one of the twelve. One of the twelve. Jesus picked twelve specifically to say, I want to pour my life in the private setting, into the, and Judas was one of them. And he's going to betray Jesus. He's going to sell Jesus to the Romans for 30 pieces of silver. His heart had already been set on that. He'd already, we're told, he'd already made the deal. He'd already made the deal. So Jesus knew, verse 3, that the Father had given everything into his hands. That he had ultimate power. Jesus knew that. Jesus, everything that is God, Jesus has access to. He could do whatever he wanted. He knew that he had come from God. He was going back to God. So he knew what the plan was. He knew where he was from. He knew the power that he had. And then verse 4 says, So he got up from, from supper. He laid aside his outer clothing. He took a towel and he tied it around himself. Next he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his feet and dry them with the towel tied around him, including Judas, who Jesus already knows has betrayed him. Whoa. Three quick observations about these first three verses. We'll talk more about Judas next week. John gives us some commentary on that. We'll talk more about that next week. But the fact that Jesus, knowing that the plan was in motion, knowing that Jesus had actually already taken the money, knowing that Jesus still washes Jesus' feet is a, a truth, a reality, a fact of history that should change us in ways that we can't even imagine. If you knew someone was, would betray you, how would you treat them? More on that next week. A second observation. This supper, as, as I said, is the famous Last Supper. And John is going to assume that he knows some things about this supper because the other gospel writers had taught on this. It was, you know, John's right. 
the Christian community, um, even though he knows others will, you know, might read this that aren't are part of it, but he's going to assume that you know what some other people said about the Last Supper, and so he's I don't need to regurgitate that. You know about that. I'm going to give you some unique details to add to a fuller picture of what was actually happening that day, and no other gospel writer, for whatever reason, the foot washing, and so he's going to leave the other stuff, but he assumes that you know it, and one of the things that you need to assume, or that I want to make sure you know about, is that Luke tells us about this, is that there were conversations happening that night because the disciples could tell something was about to change, and they all thought, they still thought, after everything that Jesus had said and taught, they still thought to take power and, and form a new government, and so they're having arguments among themselves who's going to be the greatest in his new government? And Jesus rebukes them, Luke tells us, and says, what are you doing? Why are you acting like every other human being would act? This is not my kingdom. This is not the way it works. And so, so John assumes you know these are the kinds of conversations that were happening, which makes what Jesus does all the more important. All the more important. Because he is not only going to just say, that's not how my kingdom works, he's going to show them, my kingdom, my government works like this. Power, prominence, that's not how my kingdom works. So John's going to tell us that Jesus washes their feet. All right. Now, the other thing that when you think, when I just say it, okay, Jesus washes his feet. Okay, so what does that mean? I'm guessing most of you don't wash feet when you enter your house. So you've got to understand this cultural practice and understand how upside down what Jesus did was. Okay, so in that time, most people were wearing sandals, and it's dusty, it's dirty, there's no sewer systems. So they've been walking around town, and the disciples had been walking around a lot, and the feet and your feet would be very dirty. And so when you get to a house, it would be the lowest servant in the household, and they would be the one who would wash your feet in the exact same way Jesus did here, with a towel, fresh water, with a fresh towel, and then you would go into have dinner. So the disciples, and we'll see how Peter, we'll see in a second, is like, no way. I'll never let you wash my feet because he understands how upside down this was. That, that in a society like that, this was the lowliest of tasks. There, there's nothing lower than this to do this. And so they could not conceive of Jesus washing their feet. Now they, since Jesus was their rabbi, since he was here and they were here, maybe they would wash his feet. Definitely they could see that happening, but not Jesus washing their feet. That was, in their mind, I mean, unheard of. Not only that, but this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. What's going on? So we've got that going on, and then this upper room that they're meeting in, uh, Luke tells us this, this furnished spare room, okay? So it's a, a, a furnished spare room 
uh, in Jerusalem, where hot real estate market, tight, tight quarters. So to have a spare room large enough to host a fairly large dinner like this, and it's already furnished and just kind of a room we don't use very often, this means this family was probably well-to-do. And so they probably did have servants that could have done this very same thing. So there's people that could have done it, and yet Jesus, the one with all the power, chooses to do it. It's very important to understand that all of that is at play. It's not like Jesus said, man, we forgot to do something, there's nobody to do this. He's a very clear point about the way his kingdom and government will work. This brings me to my third observation. Look at verse 4. If you're reading in my translation we're using here today, the first four starts with the word so. Um, now, it's not actually in the Greek, so your translation might not have it, but the, the translators pull out the whole sentence structure and help you see what's going on here. So let's read 2 and 3 again and then see the so. Verse 2, now when it was time for supper, and the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray Jesus, and when Jesus knew that the Father had given every hands and that he, had, that he had come from God, and that he would and was going back to God, then it says, so he got up from the supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, Okay, so the so there is very important. Because he knew that he was about to be betrayed, because he knew his time had come, because he knew he was God's one and only Son and he would go back to the Father, knowing all of those things, knowing that his time was limited, knowing he was in the last act of the play, knowing he was in the last chapter of the book, knowing when he was in the last five minutes of the class, he decides to give one last lesson. So this is important. That? The one last thing he needs them to know about his kingdom, about what he's doing. And he chooses to take off his garments, wrap a towel, and act as a servant. And wash their feet. It's so important, is what I'm trying to say. This is not just, this is like he's been planning, he's been saving this last lesson for them. He needs them to know, this is what my kingdom is like. This is what true leadership is like. This is what humility is like. And, 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 and John is reminding us, talk is cheap. Jesus doesn't give another speech here. He acts. Humility is an action, not talk. So show me your actions, and I'll see if you're humble. And Jesus shows them this amazing final lesson. I mean, just imagine how different the world would be if, if, if only this one lesson they paid attention to. course he has so much else to teach us but this lesson this is an important one okay 
So he needs his disciples to understand the full meaning of his action, and so he's going to get into a little dialogue here with Peter, and then he's going to explain to us what his, why he did this, okay? So let's read 13 verses 6 to 11. Ready? So he's getting ready to, to wash their feet, and he's washed several feet, and I think it's important to say, you know, probably these other disciples who, whose feet he had already washed before he gets to Simon Peter's, you know, they got it. They understood. This is important. Like, um, happening, but this is important. And then he gets to, to Peter. Oh, Peter, you know. Peter. Always something to say. And Peter misses, misses it, you know. Peter's trying to be more humble than Jesus. No, 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 no. When the one with power chooses to humble themselves and do something that a servant could have done and usually would have done, the humble thing is not to say, no, 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 not me. I won't let you wash my feet to try to out-humble the humble. You know people that do that? I'm going to out-humble the humble. It's like a humble ninja. Don't be a humble ninja. So let's see. Peter trying to be a humble ninja. The other disciples didn't do that. They just received this great gift, this act of service. And then Peter says, it, came, it says in verse 6, He came to Simon Peter, who, uh, who asked him. So Peter asked him, Lord, are you really going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing, you don't realize now. But afterward, you will understand. So Jesus, Jesus is like, back off, ninja. Don't try to out-humble the humble, okay? He's like, you don't get it, just trust me. And this is like why you know Peter's not acting in humility, because he's like, keeps talking. You know, like, that's always Peter. Just stop talking, Peter. Okay. So Peter says, you will never wash my feet. You can picture him saying, not in a million years will you wash my feet. And Jesus just, hand to the head, what are you doing? Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. <laughs> what? Peter's like, well, I'm the only one here out trying to be more humble than you. And Jesus, yeah, and Jesus says, yes, exactly. If you don't let me wash you, you have no part in me. If you think, yeah, yeah, I get grace for everyone else, but me, I'm going to be the, the best person. I'm going I'm to do all the, law, the rules and the law, and I'm going to be the best Christian there ever was. And yeah, I get everyone else needs grace, but me? Not me. And Jesus says, Yeah, if you don't accept the way I wash, the way I serve you, you have no. There's not two ways, Jesus is saying. There's not like those who need to be washed by grace, and then those like Peter who are just going to out humble everybody. There's only one way, Jesus is saying. If you don't do it my way, you'll have no part in me. Do you, do you see that, how important this is? Because there's some of us that do this. Oh, I'm so glad Jesus gives grace and he washes all those other disciples' feet because, yeah, they mess up all the time. But me, I'm in the category. And I'm just, I'm just going to work and be righteous and do the right thing. And, and Jesus would say to you, seriously, if you don't let me wash you by grace, you have no part in me. There's only one way. And true humility realizes that. 
Don't, out, don't try to out-ninja Jesus, okay? I've been there. I've tried to do that. It's foolishness. So Simon Peter, verse 9, is trying to figure it out. He says to Jesus, he says, Lord, okay, I'll do it your way. He says, I'll let you wash me. <laughs> now he's like, but now I'm going to out-humble ninja you another way. See how he, watch, he does this? He's like, you punch, I'll use your own weight, and I'll throw it. So listen to what he says. He says, Lord, don't just wash my feet, but also my hands and my head. I'm the, I'm the sinner, the greatest sinner. Wash my whole body. All these other disciples are only letting you wash their feet. And Jesus just looks at him again, and he just says, Peter. Peter, stop telling me how to do my job. <laughs> you know, like, like, you see what's going on? Peter's like trying so hard to be like the best disciple. Gets it wrong in one way, he's rebuked. He's like, I'm going to try this other way. And Jesus is like, so he says this, verse 10. Jesus says, he says, Peter, one who has bathed doesn't need to wash except his feet. But he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. Okay. So Peter's totally missed the thing. So Jesus is he's saying, I just need to wash your feet. You're already clean. Okay, so this isn't about... The full cleansing now. Maybe, maybe Peter, he does, Peter does shut up after this, which is nice. So maybe he's starting to get, yeah, maybe, maybe what you said to start is that I wouldn't understand. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I'll just stop. Okay, so I just need my feet, not my whole body, because I'm already clean. And then Jesus looks, all of you are clean, except not all of you, because he already knew about Judas. So what's going on here? How are we to interpret this this foot washing lesson that Jesus is giving. Um, another, another way I could ask this is just how spiritual is the lesson versus practical or moral is the lesson? Like, what does he want us to take from this example? It seems clear from this exchange with, with Peter that he has at least something very important to say on a spiritual level. But it's also very clear what we're going to read next, because Jesus is going to tell them to actually wash each other's feet moving forward, that there's something Jesus is also trying to say on a practical or moral level. And that's important too. So how are we to take the cleansing here? Like what's the important part of the cleansing? So let me try to break that down and and talk about both. Um. You know, luckily, John also wrote for us some letters that, that God has preserved for us that teach us more about um, theology and who God is. When we compare what John says in his letters to what he said in his gospel, it can help us. So let me read you something that Jesus said about spiritual cleansing in, in 1 John it's a, it's 2 to 2.6, okay? So I don't, we, don't, we won't have this on the slide. 
so you can just listen to me. So just listen very, very closely, okay? You ready? So this is what the apostle writes in a letter to the churches that's not in the gospel. He says this, This is the message that we have heard from him. That's from Jesus. John said, this is the message that we heard from Jesus, and we declare to you. This is going to sound a lot like what John's been saying. He says this, God is light. This is the message. God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, he's talking about Jesus, and we walk in darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So here's another one another that's so important in this passage. We have fellowship with one another if we walk with him as he is in the light. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Okay, cleanses us from all sin. So that can give us a clue about what cleanses us from sin. John keeps talking. He says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. So if we say we don't need to be washed, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins... He, that is God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that's God and Jesus, a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, this is John saying this, my little children, John's saying, my fellow Christians, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, but... I know you will. (laughs) If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Okay. So I wanted to read that to you because it kind of fills out the theology that I think is pregnant in this scene with Jesus. And, And that's why we have the whole New Testament. It's not like we have to figure out everything just from this about cleansing. There's all sorts of other things that God has given us by his word that extrapolate the things Jesus taught, said, and did that give us, oh, that's helpful. Okay, so when we're talking about cleansing, a couple things in the first, first John that we should, that should remind us of this is John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that seems like an ongoing active thing, Right? Like, not like a once kind of a thing, because John is writing this to people who have already been baptized and received the cleansing that happens at conversion, right? And that was just a few verses before when it says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So when you come to faith in Jesus, when you turn from darkness and you turn to light and you say, I want to walk with Jesus, you are once and for all cleansed 
cleansed by the blood of Jesus from all sin. It's not an ongoing process. And that's exactly what Jesus said to the disciples, right? So back in John 13, he looks at Peter and says, you don't, you don't need to be bathed. You were already bathed at your baptism. And, and, and the blood I'm about to pour out for you has, is and, and will make you completely clean. You are clean. So the foot washing thing that I'm doing is something different than that cleansing that comes by the blood of Jesus when we turn and trust in him and give him our life through faith. Okay? That's a once and for all cleansing. And once, once you've... Yeah, you'll, your feet will get a little dirty. That's what I think is going on here. Your feet will get a little dirty. You don't need to rewash the whole body. You don't need to be baptized over and over again. So he uses two different words, Jesus says in, in chapter 13, verse 10. He says, the one who has bathed, think of the whole body bathed, that person doesn't need to wash. That's not a full body. That's washing particular parts except for his feet. So I, I think that's Jesus's, and he's told them, you won't understand it all, but I'll help you understand it as time goes. And so John gives us. So we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, all of us. Every part of us is cleansed, and then going through life in a fallen world with, where we're still not yet there to the fullness of God's promise, removal of the flesh and temptation and sin, we will stumble and we'll pick up dirt, and so we need to have spiritual washings, not bathing, just spiritual washings occasionally. What are those spiritual washings? If we confess sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is the ongoing process of confessing your sin to God when you pick up a little dirt on your feet. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. You are cleansed by the blood of Jesus and then through confession, through the regular practice of bringing honestly, openly your sin to Jesus and saying, I've fallen short again, I've picked up some dirt on my feet, would you wash me? John says, and even then, Jesus is faithful to wash your feet. Just like he washed the disciples' feet. In a very little, literal way, through confession, he will wash your feet even if you pick up sin after having confessed that you're going to walk with him. Because we all fall short even after we've been bathed with the Holy Spirit. So I think that's what's going on. I don't think Peter gets it. <laughs> Maybe he gets it a little bit more after this interaction with Jesus. But there are, it's really important to understand both aspects of cleansing. Because um, depending on what background you come from, you could think, if I'm, if I'm not constantly bathing myself all the time, and then I were to die, I would be apart from God forever. That's not true. Once you've been bathed by the blood of Jesus through the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we reenact through the physical baptism in water, it's not the water that makes you clean, it's the Holy Spirit that makes you clean. You are clean. You are right with God. Then he wants us to, as we walk through life and pick up sin and all the stuff, he wants us to bring that to him as soon as possible. And he says, I will wash your feet. But I don't need to wash the whole thing again your feet. So you might not have never been taught that. You, you, might have, you might come from a more transactional religious background 
where it's like, I got to do this much penance to get rid of this sin. That's not, no. The Bible tells us confession is the act of washing the feet for those who are believers in Jesus. So that's what we do. And, and you don't need a priest, you don't need a pastor, you don't need anybody to, to, to wash it for you. Jesus washes it. Confess to God in the name of Jesus, Jesus will wash your feet. It's amazing. Look for it. I think that's why John, you know, John, God gives us this because it's like he knows people are like Peter and they want to just outwash themselves. And he's like, that's not how it works. But he also wants them to know, hey, you don't need to wash the whole body because once you've chosen to fall sin, I know you'll still fall short, but you just need to wash your feet and feel the freedom and be reminded of the forgiveness that comes from God. So that's the spiritual side of what's going on here. And again, what he's about, we're going to read it, what he's about to tell the disciples to wash one another's feet is not the spiritual side of it, but it is the practical or the moral side of it. So let's get into that now. So we don't become those who spiritually wash our brothers and sisters, but we are those who practically serve our brothers and sisters in Christ in this way. It's spiritual, but it's not just spiritual. Or probably the right way to say it is, everything in God's universe is both spiritual and practical, okay? They're not detached. They're not two separate universes. It's one universe, and they're, they're combined, okay? So let's look at this now radical act of humility that he set, tells his disciples to do just as he did. So look at verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and had this awesome ninja fight with Peter, after that, he put on his outer clothing, he reclined again at the table, and he said to them, Do you know that what I have done, uh, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly, since that's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master. Okay? That's strange. So he's, I thought he was trying to level the playing field. And then he comes back and he says, wait, you guys know, right? A servant is not greater than his master. And a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Okay, a strange way to end the whole thing is to say, hey guys, just so you know, you're not greater than me. Well, I thought he was the humble one. Humility doesn't suspend honesty. The honest reality is Jesus is so far greater than them ontologically that these words are true. But that makes his act of humility all the more revolutionary. So he says, just so you know, you're not greater than me, but do as I do. If I, your Lord and your teacher, wash your feet, how much more should you wash one another's feet? So this is the moral and practical implication that we see again and again in Scripture. So throughout the New Testament, we see these one another's. Um, so we just saw the one another here in verse 
14, drop your eyes down to the end of chapter 13. We'll skip over some stuff because we'll talk about it week. Look at verse 34 and 35. So Jesus gives sort of a summary of this. I give you love one another, same word, Greek word, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So, sometimes he says, love one another. And who defines what that kind of love is? Well, of course, it's the way Jesus loved. That's the whole point, he says this. They'll know you're my followers if you love like I loved. And how did I love? I washed your feet. Even though I am far greater than you, I did not think my greatness kept me from serving you. So love like that. And this Greek term that's used again and again through the New Testament is kind of a funny Greek word. It's pronounced all alone. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Isn't that funny? I didn't know that till this week. The Greek word is all alone. All alone. What? God's funny. He chose a word all alone to say love one another. And he just kept saying it all because he's, I think he's, I think he wants, I think he wanted this moment to happen where I was just so caught. All alone means love one another as more valuable than yourself. You're not all alone. The thing you need to know is when you follow God, when you serve him, when you trust Jesus at his word, you will never be all alone. You will always be all alone. You will have one another's all over this world so that wherever you are, you will never be all alone because you'll be all alone. I love that. I don't know if other preachers get that excited or weird about it, but like, that's cool to me. All alone, he says. So some other really prominent places where all alone is used is Romans 12, 4, and 5. I'll just read it to you. Now you have many parts of the body, and all the parts do not have the same function. He's talking about the church. In the same way, we, we who are many, so he's talking about the church, are one body in Christ and individually members of another. <laughs> members of all alone. That's cool. Like he's saying like, yes, there's many individuals here, but we're not alone. We are all part of each other and we need each other and we can't do with, we need everybody. Not just some of us, we need all of us. We are members of one another. Then in Philippians, the Apostle Paul writing says this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Consider, we love that word at Sedaris, consider others, which is the same all alone Greek word, consider one another's as more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interests of one another. Isn't that cool? So the thing that Jesus taught here, this final lesson, then gets sort of extrapolated and projected through all the of the New Testament in all the ways we should live like Jesus lived, which is to consider others or one another's as more important than ourselves. Wow. That's 
the message of the New Testament. That's the world Jesus came to initiate, a world in which we didn't think of ourselves as the most important, but we considered all of the other one another's as more important, and that we would never be all alone, but all alone. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? But that's hard to do, right? Because we're more like moose. We're scavengers. We're wolves. We're looking out for our own interest. We use whatever power we have to make sure we're okay first, that our feet are clean first. And Jesus says, not in my kingdom. And so when it's hard, how do we not act like moose, but act like Jesus? Paul tells us, right after he tells us, consider others as more important, more valuable than yourself, he says, I know this is going to be hard for you, and when it's hard, remember what God did for you. So he goes on. So that was Philippians 2, 3 to 4. Then in Philippians 5 to 11, he says this, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. What he's saying is, Jesus, God the Son, from eternity past, was equal with God, had all the privileges and access of God. He is God. He did not think he should just use that power, use what he had, just for himself. Instead, Paul says, instead, Philippians 2.7, instead he emptied himself by assuming taking on the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, like a garment, which, which inevitably put restriction and limitation on him. And when he, had become, when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating form of death, you, if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be executed via the cross. It was for a Roman citizen. You had only non-citizens were hung from crosses. Too, too humiliating for a Roman citizen, even if they had done the most egregious of criminal acts. We don't, we don't do that. That's too humiliating. But Jesus, God, God emptied himself of all that privilege and came and died a death on that humiliating piece of wood. For this reason... Because of the humility of God the Son, God the Father highly exalted Jesus and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is how the kingdom of God works. Willing to humble ourselves will be lifted up to equal and greater stature than even that which they came to, came from. And Jesus, through the washing of the disciples' feet, shows us how to do that day in and day out. The humility of Christ leads to one another's of the New Testament, which can be seen today in real acts of servitude to one another. So what's that mean, real acts of servitude? Does it mean actual foot washing? Well, some denominations, some Christians uh, have done this and believe this. 
Now, I, we don't do that as a church, and, you know, a, a lot of denominations don't think that this is like the Lord's Supper, that we should do it every week, but some do believe that this is something you should do every week, that it's actually a sacrament. Um, but even if you disagree with that, I like what Francis Schaeffer said about it. Um, he said this, he said, we should ask ourselves from time to time, whose feet am I washing? Some churches have made foot washing into a third sacrament. Members watch each other's feet during the worship service. While most of us think this is a mistake to make, it, to make this sacrament, let us admit that it is 10,000 times better to wash each other's feet in a literal way than to never wash each feet. Right? So we don't do literal but maybe we should if we're not the thing Jesus said in any other way. So why don't we do it? Well, we don't do it because we don't have this, we have socks and nice shoes and like there's not a tangible need. But are we washing each other's feet in any other way? Or are we just letting ourselves off the hook of this one last lesson that Jesus gives his disciples to love one another like this? So what is this? So I tried to break it down because I don't think we need to have a, a, a religious act of foot washing. I don't think that's what Jesus necessarily wanted us to do. He would, I think he would have been more clear. I want you to do this foot washing every time you meet. He says that with the Lord's Supper. So I tried to break it down. So how, how, this formula that I'm going to try to give you may or may not make sense. It's okay. Just don't try to ninja your way out of it. Okay? So here we go. So... The radicalness and the realness of Jesus' acts is Jesus' act is what we have to try to figure out to love one another in this way, to wash each other's feet in a, liter- in a figurative sense, okay? So, so three aspects of it. First, necessity. Back then, people's feet were actually dirty and needed cleaning. So whatever our act that is figuratively the same as foot washing needs to be an act that actually helps people and blesses people or, or people being fellow disciples of Jesus, because we're talking about the private gathering now, in, in ways that they actually um, need it, okay? So this becomes challenging. We need our feet washed most of the times when we come in to a meal, <laughs> most of the time. If we do, we can do this. Um, some of you need to wash your feet. <laughs> okay, my, my son Grayson's got really smelly feet, so you could wash his feet, <laughs> for instance, and you'd be doing a good thing. But like, there's a necessity to it. Like Jesus, there's a, real, there's a real issue and Jesus meets it for his disciples. So that's the first thing. There's a realness to that. The second is there's real role reversal. Okay? So the act that Jesus performed is typically done by the lowest servant of the house. So when you are considering what would be foot washing nowadays, think about something you do that is replacing an activity that's typically performed by the hired hands in our society, okay? And I think because of the, 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 the world we live in, in addition to that, you'd say not just hired hands, but that technology now does for people. Like you could see a real need and then see, I'm going to do this that technology typically does for somebody to show, and that's the third thing, to show this person that they're this valuable to me. So I know that I could just let the app do it or... Um, a higher do it, but you know what? I'm going to do it, not because it's my typical station in life, but because I want to 
show this person how truly valuable they are to me. I want to actually see them. Do you actually see one another? Are you actually looking at one another? Seeing who they are and who God has made them to be and, and then figuring out some way to show them they have great value. So when Jesus kneels down and he washes the disciples' feet, imagine the value they must have felt. I never knew I was this valuable to you, Jesus. So, so that's the third. So the first is, is a necessity, a real need. The second is, is there a real role of something typical that somebody else, a hired hand in particular, would have done or technology would have done? You do it instead. Even though you have sort of the power to, to pay somebody to do it, you say, I'm going to do it. Um, and then the third thing is it truly making the person feel valuable. Is it imbuing value in the person? Because that's why Jesus did this for them. To know truly how much value they had in his eyes. So what could those things be? So I thought about this. I talked about this with Ryan. Like, I only came up with a couple things. One of these things I turned into a Sedaris principle. But before I get that to that one, be thinking for yourself. I want you to get creative. I want you you to go from this place and think about what is something I could do and then tell somebody about it. Tell, tell your spouse. Tell me. Send me an email. Say, I thought of something that would be for me if I did this for this person. It would hit all three of those criteria. And I think, I think this would be like modern day foot washing for that person. And it might be different for different people. Um, but I thought of this silly little thing and I've actually made fun of it so I kind of wanted to rebuke myself because I'm like the king of a quick cup of coffee. So like I'm Keurig through and through. Like I'm like, it doesn't need to be that good, the coffee. <laughs> Make it quick. So that would be, be saying, technology can do this for me. But when I go to like a friend's house, and, and they, you know, they might not be doing it for the other two reasons, but to me it makes me feel extra valuable when they painstakingly prepare like a pour over cup of coffee for me. And they don't know I'm going to go right after the meeting and just make a because I'm addicted. You know, like, but like the cure the that they have and they pour it over and it's taking so long and they got a cure. It's all Keurig sitting right next to the pour over, you know. I'm like, I could just do the Keurig. And like, Dave, I want to do this for you. Okay. And, and sometimes I'm like, hurry up. I got you know, schedule. But like that feeling is, is a feeling that I think m- might hit all three of those criteria. I mean, I definitely need the coffee. Technology could do it for me and do it faster. But because you want me to have a really great cup of coffee in our time together, that does make me feel valuable. It doesn't have to be big things. That's why I wanted to bring that one up. It doesn't have to be some big thing. You don't have to pay somebody's rent. You don't have to buy them a car. You could just, you know, see them as valuable enough to take a little bit more time and prepare them a coffee. So the principle that we have is the principle, no more airport Ubers. If you, if you haven't come to our 14 principles trivia night, you can come learn about the principles. You can read them on the website. But the whole point of that is not, we're not like trying to take down Uber. This is like an activist movement. No more Uber. Save, okay, save the taxis. No. Um, the point is, like you have, you have family like if you live in, in the like if you're from Seattle and you have family near, there's a very good chance if you have to go to the airport, you'll call them. But if you don't have family around, there's a very good chance you'll call an Uber. 
or taxi or whatever. And what we want to say is, whether you have people near to you or not, if you're a part of the family of God, there's enough one another's, there's, there's all alone, there, there, there's none of that here, so if you need a ride to the airport, don't let technology do it. Let somebody bless you and serve you because you're that valuable to them. Will you let them serve you? Don't, don't be humble ninja like Peter. Don't be like, I always take people to the airport. I never let anybody else Uber, but when it's my turn to go to the airport, you know, you know, you know, come on, you know, you know. I don't, I don't want to put that on people. I've got the money. I'll, I'll, I'll save them. That's being like Peter. That's trying to be humble ninja. Don't do that. Let them, let, ask other people to help you out. And if we do that for one another, we create a kind of community where we know we're not all alone. And that's the world Jesus wants to create. Through his church, through loving like he loves, we are never all alone. We have people that want to make us great coffee and people that will take us to the airport at 4 a.m. And they'll do it with joy on their face, just like Jesus washed the disciples' feet with joy. So I don't know. Think of examples. Send me examples. I'll read them off next week at church. Examples of other ways to wash each other's feet. To love like Jesus loved. To see the one another's and the faces around you and to say, you are that valuable. I will do whatever it takes to help you know how valuable you are. And it's going to take creativity. It's going to take sacrifice. And it will take true humility to put yourself in a position below them so that they know that they are way worth way more than they ever thought they were let's pray